0: Welcome to Parenting Today's Teens, a daily podcast that provides stories, insights, and wisdom to help you gain a deeper relationship with your teen. On today's episode, Mark Gregson talks about gaining understanding and wisdom from a biblical perspective as you parent your teen.
1: As I put together a devotional um, to talk about, I I know this is going to go 15 or 20 minutes, and so make sure you have time to listen to it, but I want to use a scripture that's Proverbs 3, uh, 21 through 26, and let me just read that to you. I think it's important here, uh, and you'll see why here in just a minute. It says, "'My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight.'" Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way safely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side, and keep your foot from being snared." You know, there's a couple of things in here that I think are important. One is understanding and wisdom. That's important. The second part is you won't be afraid and your sleep will be sweet. And I know there's a lot of people whose sleep really isn't that sweet because you're struggling with a child that may be spinning out of control. And so as you begin dealing with a struggling teen, you know, I think what happens is you immediately realize – the need for understanding and wisdom. And so let's consider a few of the basics that'll be foundational as you build or or rebuild uh, your relationship with your teen. The first thing is you got to be facing the right direction. An old Chinese proverb tells us that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I would add that you might want to make sure you're stepping in the right direction. And sadly, too many parents move in the wrong direction with their children, and they are exhausted and if you are already tired and feel abandoned by a child who is struggling, you certainly don't want to get lost as well. And as with any journey, a little bit of planning ensures that, you know, you'll be headed in the right direction. And the first priority is to make sure that your feet are along that path, loving your child, focusing on him or her, and discerning what God might be doing, and avoiding condemnation. Okay, that's... Those are some uh, easy things to say, but hard to do when your child is spinning out of control. To love your child, focus on them, discern what God might be doing, and avoid condemnation. You know, during my years of involvement in with Young Life, which is an organization that works with kids who are lost, I told gospel stories every week, and one of the stories that always caught my attention in a very special way was the woman that was caught in adultery. It's in John 8. And I always wondered what Jesus was writing in the sand when the crowd of religious leaders stood around her condemning her and planning to stone her to death. And you probably remember that when the Pharisees brought the young girl to Jesus, they told them that she's been caught in adultery and the law required them to stone her. And then they asked him, what would you do? And his response was to stoop down and write in the sand. And then he stood up and he said, he who is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And then Jesus stooped back down and began writing again. You know, he wrote twice. And, and, and her accusers dispersed after that, and no one picked up a stone and hurled it. Every one of them walked away. And you know what? I think I know what Jesus wrote. I mean, we obviously don't know for sure, but I bet he scribbled two simple and intriguing words the first time he wrote in the sand, and those two words were, what if... And those two words could hold anyone's interest for just a minute. And as he wrote the words, capturing everyone's attention, he stood up, stated his decision, and returned to writing on the ground. I think the second time he stooped to write, I think he finished his question, What if this was your daughter? At his spoken words, the the rocks hit the ground, and with his sand-scribbled words, the jaws of every father in the crowd dropped. And they probably also dropped their pride as they shuffled away, struggling to hold back the tears welling up beneath their brows. You know, people always ask me if that's true and if these were really the words that Jesus wrote. And they ask if this, um, if this woman was really a young girl you know, I don't know, but it's my gut feeling. I've read the story hundreds of times, and I've witnessed common scenarios between fathers and daughters often. Young girls freeze when confronted, and older girls run. And this girl stood there long enough for Jesus to share his liberating declaration. And the scripture also says that older men left the area first, followed by the younger men. And some say that the older men left first because they recognize their own sinfulness, And I wonder if it was also because many of them were also dads. And as the younger men followed, they may have asked, hey, what did he write back there? Why are you so quiet? Did I just miss something? (laughs) You bet they did. Seeing your child in a traumatic situation like that can get you facing in the right direction. It can move your heart towards someone in your family who is struggling. And I know from personal experience... A painful personal experience with my son. My son made a mistake after he got married to his college uh, sweetheart. He fell in love with another girl. And uh, this other girl's wonderful, but the problem is he was already married. And so we welcomed his first wife uh, into our family when they tied the knot the year before. Their divorce was finalized close to their second anniversary. Now I, I I loved my daughter-in-law. Adam's uh, decision to divorce closed the door to a lifetime with a daughter-in-law that every father would want. The entire experience was painful, and it hurt many, including me. And it tempted me to judge and condemn my son. You know, I was shocked this could be happening to me and my wife, uh, angered that my son could pull such a stunt, and infuriated over his timing. I mean, I was thinking, you know, most of the time, but didn't he think about how this would impact our family or in hers? Frankly, I was embarrassed at his choices. I performed the wedding and I spent quite a bit of time with her family. They loved my son, could say nothing wrong about him, and were excited about this new union. So when Adam betrayed their trust, the perfect son-in-law suddenly became a stranger who violated any integrity that he had shared with them before. Having a son offend so many people was a whole new experience for me. Never have I felt such pride turned to shame and never uh, felt the need to avoid people before. And now I did, hoping that they would not ask. I never felt so confused by one of my own children's actions. I felt hurt and violated in a way I rarely have ever experienced. I always told my son that that, uh, any—and if you listen to this podcast— Uh, you hear me saying this all the time, to tell your kids that there's nothing you can do to make me love you more and there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. Well, they really came out of what I would always tell my son. And so now he put my words to test. I was amazed how lost that I felt. And at the same time, I felt an overwhelming urge to pray for guidance, to seek wisdom, and to see with the eyes of my heart. I quietly stayed somewhat misplaced for about six months, realizing that as each day passed that regardless of how much control I have over my own life, I really have no control over anybody else's life, including my son. Instead of focusing on what I no longer had, I began asking God um, how he might use me uh, in the midst of this disaster. My son would continue to be my son. As painful as it was, I needed to continue to be his dad. Our situation taught me a whole new way that that no family is immune from such a struggle. Not mine, not yours, not your neighbor's, not anybody else. And I find it intriguing that immediately after the story of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I would say that uh, a young woman's dad was in the crowd. That Jesus' comment may have been directed right at him. And that dad encountered, uh, you know, his child's sin, and he was living in the darkness only a sinful child can bring. And he needed the light, just like I did. My world is not impregnable, and neither is yours. And this kind of situation can happen to you and might be happening to you right now uh, to those you love and to those you know, regardless of how much you believe otherwise. This side of heaven, no family, our child is immune to struggle. And so when a child struggles and you accept that this can happen to your child, the way you look at it about everything changes. Embracing the truth in this time is not an easy thing, Uh, but if you will, your perspective changes. You realize your child or your family was never perfect. Your child's adolescent years tend to bring out some hidden imperfections, and realizing things are not as right as you thought will help you move from judgment to compassion, and from harshness to tenderness. And over the years, I've I've seen that when parents admit the problems and that exist within their own families, and they often change the way they handle situations. They react in a kinder and gentler and and more compassionate way. But embracing the truth isn't easy. As a matter of fact, it can be downright hard, but when you admit and accept what is happening within your family, you take a major step toward your family's healing. There's an American psychologist and philosopher, William James, and he said this, acceptance of what happened is the first step to overcoming the consequence of any misfortune. Okay, let me say that again. He says, this philosopher, William James, said acceptance of what happened is the first step to overcoming the consequence of any misfortune. And here are some families that came to their realizations in a lot different ways. And I and I wrote these down and and uh, their names and I because I remember their stories. And there was a story about John and Virginia, and they always strive for good things for their two daughters, and they live with their kids and dedicated themselves to be involved in all of their daughters' activities. You could always find them in church giving their kids everything. Laughter filled the house. Holidays were great. Vacations were wonderful. Pictures throughout the house reflected the depth of the relationships, and everyone in Phoenix knew them as a perfect family. And then I remember John calling me one night, and his first words quiver as they came out of his mouth, and he said, Mark, it's worse than I thought. Patty, their 17-year-old daughter, came home high from smoking pot, and in her stupor uh, with them, uh, she shared how she'd been doing this for a couple of years, and she stated that they can do nothing about it. And I listened as John shared what was clearly a double dose of bad news. The first dose was the initial shock that his daughter even knew what pot was, and she was still smoking it. And the second was that she'd been smoking it for a long time. And this loving dad's words to me were filled with hopelessness, and my eyes were filled with tears. You know, John's difficult realization came as a shock. It came to him as a shock, and it broke his heart. There was another family, Pete and Jennifer, called and asked if they could meet with me. And I'd met with them off and on during the past year. Uh, They kept me informed about their son, named Kyle, a great guy. And during the meeting, the conversation is, well, we want to let you know what has happened to catch you up and get some advice. Within the past week, Pete and Jennifer realized their son was doing a lot of other drugs in his room. Then he got in a fight with his mother in the car and called her every name in the book. He threatened to leave home and wanted to drop out of school. And for months, I'd listened to these well-meaning parents describe the ongoing saga with their son. But they never followed any of my advice or directives. And when they finally asked what I thought, I decided it was time to give them a wake-up call. We'd spent you know, quite a bit of time together, and now was the time to bring some light to a dark subject. And I'd won the right to be heard. And this time, it appeared that they were listening. I I shared that I'd seen their son deteriorate during the past 10 months. At first, he was struggling through some normal teen issues, but now he was brash enough to use other drugs. And in his parents' home, he showed signs of depression. He had wrecked two cars. He got arrested three times, lost two jobs, and now he's flunking school. He took his troubles out on his family, yelling and screaming at everybody. He turned into a vulgar and hateful young man. I told these parents, if they don't wake up and do something quickly, their son would be dead, probably very soon. And as difficult as it was to hear, Pete and Jennifer broke down crying as their eyes were opened by someone who can give them perspective. They didn't want to see the truth because it would reveal they failed somewhere. It meant they didn't have a perfect family, a perfect child. So where John and Virginia's realization about their daughter came as a shock, Pete and Jennifer's realization came as enlightenment. Then there's Steve and Tanya. They adopted a little girl and a younger boy with high hopes for both. But with their adopted son, Adam, things were less than ideal. Adam began to act out, and instead of experiencing consequences for the inappropriate behavior that he displayed to everybody, he received accolades and applause for anything good. Steve and Tanya didn't confront Adam's unacceptable behavior. They believed in powering him through his struggles and encouraging him to do better. And meanwhile, Adam's occasional visit to the principal's office was upgraded to visits by the local police. Steve and Tanya really believed that their son was not capable of doing anything bad. And this mentality kind of allowed Adam Adam to continue to violate just about every rule and boundary they had set up in their home. As Adam's parents believed the fantasy that their son could do no wrong, Adam plummeted in every area of his life because he could do no right. And by minimizing the problems, they were actually allowing them to grow. And I'm not sure what awakened Steve and Tanya. I remember Steve saying to me, I can run a company of 10,000 people around the world, but I can't figure out how to help my only son who lives in my own home. Adam paid the price for their blindness, and they eventually had to wake up to their responsibility for what they would not see. So rather than a shock or enlightenment, Steve and Tanya experienced an awakening. Then there's Sam and Marty. Sarah was always a difficult child, and from the day that Sam and Marty adopted her, they knew something was different. She didn't connect with other kids. She was bright in every way, but she could not stay out of trouble. So throughout grade school and junior high, she was always pushing the limits, manipulating situations and people, refusing to accept responsibility, and always, always making excuses. Sam and Marty felt like they inherited these issues. They had no control over them and they're not and they weren't going to you know be able to correct or prevent Sarah's behavior without professional help. Their love for Sarah was deep and they soon realized that the Sarah project was going to last a long time, so they prepared as best they could. They moved from counselor to Psychologist to psychiatrist with all sorts of testing. And rarely have I seen parents willing to do so much with so little return. Sarah got in trouble at church uh, on a youth retreat for taking pills. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Sam and Marty felt like um, that if they didn't get Sarah to a residential setting, that can control her and hopefully help in the process that she wouldn't live to reach her 18th birthday. Their realization of the problem was not a shock, an awakening, or an enlightenment. It was a validation of what they already knew. And then there's James and Laura. Tammy was the perfect child. Never in a million years would anyone imagine this young girl struggled with some dark issues. And after years of keeping it a secret, Tammy tearfully. Confessed that her uncle was sexually abusing her. Feeling angry and violated, James and Laura struggled with a confusing set of emotions and beliefs. They love Tammy and they burn with anger at this once trusted family member. They privately beat themselves up over and over, hoping to find solace, but trying to convince themselves they did everything possible to protect their child. Their realization of their child's problems and struggles came through exposure. Exposure to something new and foreign. They went to sleep in one world with a joyful thankfulness for their daughter and they awoke the next day to a world of confusion and bewilderment. Other parents come to truth through an acceptance of what they already know, but find it hard to believe. And some parents eventually come to an agreement as a mom and dad to figure out something is wrong and something needs to be done to correct what is spinning out of control. So whether it's shock, enlightenment, awakening, validation, exposure, acceptance, or agreement, all different ways of discovering some of the same related truths And it's the truths about damaging behavior that your child is experiencing or engaging in. You know, regardless of how parents come to this realization that their teen is struggling, the truth is never easy to accept. But as soon as most parents accept their plight, they want to understand what's happening. The desire to find answers and a solution to their predicament is paramount. I've told people this a thousand times. Now that you know the truth, you're in no worse place than you were before you knew it. You just know now. You know, and bad news is never fun to hear, but it gives you the opportunity to do something about it. You know, I believe this that it that it changes your perspective. And 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 perspective is such an important principle. And let me illustrate this. You know, let's say that a man stumbles into a room where I'm giving a talk and his speech is slurred and he awkwardly moves toward me. He falls down before me, throws up all over my boots uh, with garbled words. He struggles to tell me how sorry he is and he then passes out and falls on my feet. Most people in that room, their first response would be to think that he's drunk and someone ought to keep bums like him out of the room. Most onlookers would get angry. Others might feel embarrassed. And some might get mad enough to want to drag this drunk out back and teach him a lesson. But then I'm going to tell you one small detail that might change your perspective and your response. This man isn't drunk. He's experiencing a brain aneurysm. The symptoms of both states are the same. And knowing it's an aneurysm, not booze-causing the behavior... It changes everything. Then that understanding moves you in ways that you would not move otherwise. Because we now understand what's happening. We don't mind that the man thrip. We don't feel embarrassed. The stench and the behavior don't bother us the slides. Matter of fact, I am moved more to help this guy any way that I can. A woman is brought into an emergency room and yelling and screaming, cussing like a sailor and throwing objects. Does it matter? Are we going to correct her? Do we refuse her because she offends us? Not on your life. Maybe she just broke her back in a car accident, and whatever behavior she just displays is born out of pain, not rational thought. And these situations are similar to a teen struggle. Their behaviors is not right, but the behavior is not the issue. It's a symptom of something that's greater. And when you understand that the behavior is a reflection of something deeper, you'll change the way you respond and offer yourself to them in a different way. You see, understanding and wisdom help you see with your, the eyes of your heart to look beyond the surface in order to discover that which is hidden or unseen. And and, and just one final word about understanding. I realize that our first response to the realization that your child is messing up is usually anger. And anger is an emotional reaction to hurt and confusion. It's a response to what is triggered in us by someone else's actions. But once you realize it's not about you, but about your child, you allow a new understanding to capture these negative emotions. And when your anger dissipates, you can love and respond with your heart. A new understanding of your child Brings a new sense of appreciation. Okay, now let me get back to my son, okay? How did I handle my son during this struggle? Not well. While it was easy to imagine what I would do and to armchair quarterback a scenario with a good ring to it, no one really has any idea how they respond to a tragedy with their child. Sure, you can say you'd handle it and muster up enough accumulated wisdom to project what it would be like to look straight in the eyes of your daughter, you know, and, and or your son, uh, you know, with those eyes of danger and despair. But when those eyes are your son's, it looks like all wisdom flies out the window. Responses are more of a knee-jerk reaction and spontaneous than thought out. And this is what I told my son when he first told me about His affair and his desire to divorce the young lady that we love. Are you ready for this? This is what I said, okay? I looked at him and said, Adam, when you can call your father in law and share with him how you screwed up his daughter's life and what you're going to do to fix it, then I'll talk to you. That is the reality of what I said to my son in crisis, the young man I've told all my life there's nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. And now my words came back to bite me. I've said those lines a hundred times. I've used them in seminars and conferences. I've advised other parents to make sure that their kids know the truth. And now I joke about it when I speak sometimes because the truth of the matter is, I did love Adam a lot less. And during my sleepless nights, I sat thinking about the conflict I was experiencing between what I wanted from Adam and how I really felt. And when I told Adam I'd talk to him after he did what I knew was the right thing, I thought it would surely motivate him to change his way, stop his foolishness and get his life back in line, but it didn't. Truth be told, all I accomplished was to abandon my son at the time that he needed me the most. And when he got lost, I told him to go lose himself more. When he became the sheep that wandered, or the lost coin that rolled away, I didn't go after him to look at him or to look for him. The son with whom I was well pleased when he was doing well became an outcast relegated to an island of shame and, and disappointment. And I was the one who pushed him there. I thought drawing the line was great wisdom, but quite honestly, it was pure foolishness. I shamed Adam only to discover that shame pushes people deeper into their shameful behaviors. I thought I was doing a wise thing. And my apologies, my eyes are leaking and my nose is dripping all over the place right now. I told my friends not to house him in hopes that living in a rotten hotel would help him see his ways and turn things around. I talked with his friends and... We shared how we would pursue Adam and help him get the right perspective. And those friends even met and told me that he was going to burn in hell if he got a divorce. I talked to people, and most of the counsel I received did nothing but affirm the stupid lack of tact and misguided approach to getting my son's attention. They thought I did the right thing. Friends and pastors and many others didn't really offer any wisdom. They offered what sounded good. But it wasn't wisdom, not on your life. And then finally, I shared with a dear friend, a guy named Paul Overstreet, who writes songs about love and difficulty and hardships, who had experienced a divorce himself. I told him what Jane and I were going through with our son. And I shared with him what I told Adam. and I kind of expected he'd give me a high five for holding my son accountable. But I didn't get one. Paul looked at me and said, well, why did you tell him that? At the time that he needed you the most, you threw him under the bus. Is that what God would have said to you? You know, I thought about the adulterous woman. What did Jesus do? He didn't demand shame or hurt her, and from that moment on, everything changed in me. I saw my son differently. I started to pursue him. The comments I made began the process of healing rather than creating more alienation and disgrace. Interesting the word disgrace, isn't it? So let me pass on some wisdom I learned when my son did everything differently than what I expected or wanted. Chances are your best efforts got you stuck in the situation you're in. And please don't read that as, as me saying that you're not capable of doing the right thing. You just don't know what to do. If you knew how to fix everything, you know, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. I have to go a step further in telling you that in order to get out of the situation you find yourself in, you're going to have to rely uh, on more than your best efforts and your thoughts and your plans and your strengths. What sounds good and feels right is not always what's best for the new situation that you find yourself in. And pardon me for sniffing. I'm reminded of Proverbs 12:15 that says this, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And my paraphrase of that would be this. Just because I think it's right doesn't mean that it is. And if it's not, there must be another way uh, found through the wisdom of God and others. There's another proverb. It's Proverb 1920. Can you tell I was Oklahoma Bible quiz champ of 1969? And it applies to dealing with this situation Uh perfectly. And it says this, listen to the counsel and receive instruction so that you may be wise in your latter days. Many uh, ask how I've been able to accomplish what I have in the development of Heartlight and parenting today's teens and radio programs and books and seminars and more, and the answer's easy. I surround myself with men and women who are wise and who give me Various perspectives in many varied situations. But here's a clincher. I trust them when I think that they're right. That's the easy part. But I also trust them when I think that they're wrong, and that's the harder part. But because I surround myself with wise folks, I don't have to rely on my own foolishness. So here's my encouragement to you. Seek counsel from wise people. Seek advice from those who gain their wisdom through observation, reflection, and experience. Wisdom and understanding coupled together usher in a new sense of hope and assurance that you will get to the end of this current trial. And I guarantee when you apply the wisdom of God uh, and others to the uh, traumas you experience with your teen instead of your just your own knee-jerk reactions from your own pain and shame. You will sleep far better at night, and your relationship will start on a path of healing rather than remain mired in the hurt that you now feel. Hey, God bless you. Hope you have a great day.